Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, and we'll be starting chapter 4. Peter and John are put into custody, and as we'd like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come together to further study your word and to apply it to our lives, and, and we thank thank you for uh, bringing Mark to uh, lead this study for us and to help understand the the, uh, the meanings of the scriptures. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tom. I'm glad that uh, we're back uh, going on our study of Acts. This has been a real eye-opening experience for me. We're looking at the book of Acts from a slightly different point of view than is usually taken uh, in that we're seeing the theme as the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And this is so critical, and we'll see as we go through, because there's so much misunderstanding today uh, in the United States and other places about the nature of the kingdom. We looked at the Gospel of John before uh, we looked at Acts, and of course the constant theme there was the spiritual instead of the carnal and, you know, Jesus just flat out tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we see in the end of the book of Luke that Jesus starts opening the disciples' hearts and minds to understand the true nature of the kingdom. And we saw in the beginning of Acts that he gives them uh, 40 days after his resurrection to teach them about the kingdom uh, before his final ascension and disappearance in terms of his bodily form. And then now his work is continuing on exactly as it had been done when he was in the flesh, but it's being done now through the agency of the believers who have become the new body of Christ, or will by the second chapter of Acts. The synopsis of the book is found in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And this is exactly what we'll see happening throughout the book. So it is, amazingly, it is the fulfillment of all of the promises made to physical Israel. And that's something we don't often think about. In fact, many, many churches that are not dispensational state that the old physical Israel was finished at the cross, but we will see throughout the book of Acts that this is 
simply not the case that God is demonstrating his faithfulness to Israel even though she has been consistently unfaithful to him he is answering that faithlessness with faithfulness and we're seeing just uh, an incredibly detailed fulfillment of all these prophecies that were given to physical Israel throughout the book of Acts. We saw so many in the Gospel of John, so many in, in the book of Luke, or Gospel according to Luke, and now we'll see so many more in the book of Acts, more than I ever realized. And we will you know, see that there is a spiritual fulfillment to these prophecies. Uh, Israel could, well, Israel was going to be saved through judgment, or I will say a remnant of physical Israel was going to be saved through judgment and transformation. And Paul will talk more about this uh, at the end of Acts, but there was going to be a restoration which was going to involve a spiritual recreation of physical Israel, and that would be culminated when physical Israel was literally wiped off the map in A.D. 70, which happens just a few years after the book of Acts ends. But Paul sets the stage for that um, in the last part of the book, which is predominantly about the work of Paul. So anyway, it's some very interesting things. In chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out just as Christ had told them in chapter 1. And we went back and looked at numerous prophecies, particularly Ezekiel 37, the vision of dry bones, and Joel 2, which had been quoted there in, in Acts 2, showing that this spirit was was tied in with God's plan to recreate Israel by breathing his spirit into her. She was spiritually dead, separated from God by her sins. He was going to breathe new life into her uh, with this spirit that's poured out and so this spirit that is very central to the story in Acts 2 is part of God's promises to Old Testament Israel that in her last days God's spirit would be poured out on her and Joel uses those exact words in the last days and Ezekiel it's it can be deduced uh, that that is the case so that the spirit is uh a great indicator that the last days of physical Israel have arrived and 3,000 Judean men at least come in to the group of believers uh, on the day of Pentecost. This is a new exodus, which is another sub-theme that will run throughout the book of Acts. Since judgment is coming on physical Israel, the apostles and the disciples are, are just begging their countrymen to come out of her and to enter in to the new spiritual Israel to be saved. And there's a great sense of urgency that is evident throughout this book and throughout the letters of Paul and so on, which is completely overlooked by nearly all of the churches in America today because of this impending judgment. And just shortly after all these events in chapter 3, then... Peter and John are going up to the temple. The, the Judean Christians are going to be very diligent in, in following the law of Moses as long as the temple was standing for the next uh, 40 years. They're going to be very diligent. We'll see even on Paul's last visit that the church had a lot of members in Jerusalem who were very diligent to keep the law, and they were 
going through the Nazarite vows, and they wanted Paul to go up and help these men fulfill their Nazarite vows to demonstrate that Paul was not preaching that the law had been abolished yet as he had been accused. And Paul did not say, oh, wait a minute, guys. I, I have been preaching that the law has been abolished, that the law was abolished at the cross. He doesn't say that at all. He says, well, of course, you know, and he goes up there to the temple, and that's that's when he's arrested, which sets the stage for the last eight chapters of the book and his trials amongst various authorities. So we'll see uh, interesting things like this that, that show that the that the teachings in, in the churches in this country about the last days are very confused, and the amillennialists and the postmillennialists and whatnot have have not been able to effectively address the apostasy of dispensationalism. But if we just simply let the Bible speak for itself, we're going to see an incredibly powerful uh, refutation of the dispensational premillennialism and what we call Christian Zionism. At, in chapter 3, Peter affirms that all the prophets spoke of those days, and uh, of course the non-dispensational churches stretch that to mean all the days since, and we're still in the last days, and they're caught up in all this last days madness and false predictions of the end and so on, which is a real tragedy. It keeps the Christians from focusing on what really needs to be done in the world today to uh, accomplish God's purposes. So the, the uh, <clears throat> in Acts 3, Peter and John have gone up to the temple to pray at the evening time of evening prayer, and they've seen this beggar who's been camped out there at the gate to the uh, court of women for decades. Virtually every Judean who'd ever made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem has seen this guy sitting there. And this is a specific fulfillment of a promise given to Israel back in Isaiah 35, which is a very short chapter of 10 verses. And and the dispensationalists love this chapter uh, because they they claim that it has not been fulfilled yet. But let's, let's just read that real quickly here because this sets the stage for Acts chapter 4. The wilderness of the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are fearful in heart, be strong, don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So this is this theme of, of pending judgment tied in with the deliverance of Israel. Judgment and deliverance are tied together in so many of these prophecies. Continuing in verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. This is so common in the prophetic language that in in the messianic kingdom of God, living water would flow out from the throne of God in the new Jerusalem and would flow out and, and bring life to all the dead and waste areas. And, uh, of course, the dispensationalists can't accept that this has been fulfilled spiritually, and so they're still waiting for this water to literally spring forth 
Uh, of course, the Dome of the Rock has to be demolished first. The temple has to be rebuilt. And the, the throne of David has to be set up right there in the side of the Holy of Holies. And then they believe that literal water will literally rush up out of Mount Zion in Jerusalem and literally rush down uh, into the Dead Sea and bring the Dead Sea back to life like Ezekiel, his version, promises that. But here, the lame man shall leap as a heart. This, of course, was just fulfilled for us there in Acts chapter 3. And we'll see more healings, which are all signs of these fulfillments of God's promises to Israel through the prophets. The glowing sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground will become springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where they lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. This is real important because later on in the book of Acts, we will see Luke and Paul referring to the church as the way. And it's referring right back here to Isaiah 35. So if if Isaiah is being fulfilled in Acts, you know, 12 and Acts 18, you know, it's it's talking about the same period of time. So you know, we know that verse 6, the lame man leaping as a heart, and this has already been quoted, by the way, to uh, John the Baptist by Jesus to to confirm his doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. This is These are all signs of the new age, the age of the Messiah, that all the scholars in Israel and Judea had been, you know, predicting and had been waiting for. The unclean shall not pass over this way. It shall be... For the redeemed, the people of the way, the unclean, uh, I'm sorry, the wayfaring men, yes, fools shall not err in it. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go thereon. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So this is the regathering of Israel, which is the establishment of the Messianic kingdom, the restoration of David's throne. And it is being fulfilled spiritually in the days of John the Baptist, Christ, and the apostles. We're seeing that affirmed over and over again. All right, so any thoughts or interjections here before we start in Acts 4? That Paul did go to the temple when he was asked to talk to the lost sheep, the Israelites who were interested, it was very typical of him going to temples and places, uh, houses of worship, to actually try to recruit Christians from the ranks. Uh, right, and that's how we've we've tried to explain away these passages. But there's really something more to it than that. If if the law was really if the law had passed away at the cross then the entire church at Jerusalem had fallen into sin. James, the brother of Jesus, one of the elders there, Peter, all of them had fallen into sin. And Paul then sinned by failing to rebuke them when they you know, made it clear that they were still zealously following the law of Moses. And that is in Acts 21. Were Jesus' words about that he came to fulfill the law, is that not pretty plain? It is extremely plain, and, and Luke 
21:22 tells us exactly when that fulfillment would be. Uh, Luke 21 is when Jesus is describing the absolute destruction that is about to come on Jerusalem and all of Judea. And uh, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, know that her desolation is at hand. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them that are in the midst of her leave, and let not them that are in the country go back in. For these are days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So it's very consistent that that the fulfillment of the law would take place at her judgment, at the judgment of physical Israel in A.D. 70. And whereas the, uh, the Gentile Christians were told not to follow the law of Moses, don't be circumcised, the Judean Christians intentionally kept the law of Moses, not because it would uh, save them or anything like that, but they kept it because they knew it had not yet passed away. And they were demonstrating, by their faithfulness, they were demonstrating God's continuing faithfulness to Israel, holding out the hope till the bitter end that a remnant would come out of her and be saved before her utter and complete uh, destruction. And so anyway, I know this is different than we've all been taught. But again, the old answers to dispensationalism have not been adequate. They've not been accurate. The dispensationalists can poke holes in it. And I believe by, again, just letting the Bible speak and looking at, at how these passages fit so perfectly together about when that fulfillment would be right from the mouth of Jesus, it makes so much more consistent sense. Uh, and we don't have to go round about the, the barrel to try to answer dispensational arguments. Some of the debates that I heard in earlier years are just pathetic to be blunt so this well, i mean this yeah, the dispensational argument is that this is all yet to come exactly yes yep. and that nothing was fulfilled any time along the way but that except uh, jesus coming was a fulfillment of prophecy but the other prophecies they say are going to be fulfilled with the with the physical israel and the raising of the dry bones and which you've already discussed and other questions and other now, many other the, issues. The only way they can get around Luke 21 is by saying, well, yeah, partially this was fulfilled in AD 70, but it's really going to be fulfilled at the end of the third temple, the third Jerusalem, which will be utterly destroyed. Oh, which hasn't been built yet. So, that, right. yes, okay. Well, I hope I didn't digress, but thank well, you. This is different than we've been told. But what we've been told just is full of holes and gaps, I can see now. And, and this is just a much more consistent way of fitting all of this together and seeing, in fact, you know, we, we talked a little bit here over the last uh, few years about replacement theology and supersessionism. But as Don Preston, who I'm following on this Acts study, as he developed his outline and went through Acts, he, he realized that you know, this this isn't replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. And Old Covenant Israel was not replaced. She was completely fulfilled, and she was completely remade into a perfect bride. She had been a harlot bride, faithless, and then, now she's perfect and spotless and unblemished in every way. 
So God really never left his first love. He he just completely recreated her into something of perfection, and we are all blessed to be a part of that. Mark, this may be a digression, but many people believe about the destruction of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D., but a lot of dispensationalists hold on to the idea that it was 90, much later, like 95 A.D., that changes a lot of things. Uh, can you give us a, well, some that, reasons why they believe 95 A.D.? That Jerusalem was destroyed in 95. They believe that the book of Revelation was written in 95. Because oh, that's right. if, okay. if the book of Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, which every theme in the book of Revelation screams that I'm written before the destruction of Jerusalem, but they can't tolerate that because it totally destroys, I mean, totally shatters their theology, their eschatology, their last day's madness. It all goes out the window. Because okay. they are waiting for God's promises to Old Covenant Israel to yet be fulfilled physically in the future. So the concept that Old Covenant Israel is gone and was the harlot riding the beast, uh, as she's depicted in the book of Revelation, this they can't handle that. So, you know... out. Out of all these early Christian sources that, that discuss the Revelation, there's one, Irenaeus in the second century, who wrote a very confusing narrative about John, you know, living into the second century and teaching Polycarp, and then Polycarp was the teacher of of Irenaeus. And you when you read this, you can't even be sure that he's talking about the Apostle John. It could be I mean, John became an extremely popular name, and it already, you know, it already was, and uh, you know, it's real confused. And that this real confused uh, narrative of Irenaeus about uh, John, the Apostle John's life, maybe, is the only historical source for the late date of Revelation. But what you see is that since the publication of the Schofield Bible in 1908, that all of the evangelical scholars are now, yeah, well, Irenaeus is the authoritative source, and we know that the book of Revelation was written late. So it becomes kind of a circular, you know, reasoning. There's a there's a phenomenal book on this, which was a doctoral work of a, of a seminary student named Ken Gentry, and it's just phenomenal. It's called Before Jerusalem Fell, and it examines the historical and the contextual evidence within Revelation for the early date and the late date, and then kind of let you make up your mind. And to my knowledge, nobody has issued any kind of scholarly rebuttal to this book. It's so well done. And he's in, in the last several years, he's put out a shorter version of this book, which I think is called The Beast of Revelation, and it's about a third as long. You know, it's like 120 pages instead of 350. So I highly recommend either of those books, uh, which you can find on the Internet, to anyone interested in studying when the book of Revelation was written. Because it, it's it's crucial. It's a crucial um, thing. And remember, when we studied the book of Daniel, we were told that at the end of the 70th week that an end would be made to sin, you know, resurrection would occur, judgment would occur, 
and it would be the sealing of all vision and prophecy. And so to consistently, you know, believe that Daniel knew what he was talking about, or God better through Daniel, you know, we have to realize that the, that the, the prophetic inspiration that brought about the writing of the Bible, this would have all been ended by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem when all of those things that Daniel said would happen at the end of the 70th week were accomplished or finalized. I mean, they'd been, they'd been in the process of being accomplished for 40 years, but they were finalized with the complete, complete and total destruction of the Judean nation. Hmm. But anyway, so that is a key question for anyone, you know, studying these issues is when the book of Revelation was written. And again, we see why the dispensationalists have a vested interest in keeping people confused. But I mean, there nothing happened in the year 95. I mean, there there were no great world events going on. Domitian was a fairly decent emperor. He was ruling. And uh, there was a plot in his household to, uh, or he thought there was a plot to get rid of him. And he did purge several members of the imperial household, and uh, four or five of those were Christians. But, you know, to, to try to build that into a wide-scale persecution of Christians is really grasping at straws. And Gentry goes into great detail on all those things in his books. Mark, if then, I think this is in the book, too, if then the book of Revelations was actually written before 70 A.D., then the prophecies about the disaster coming and so on would likely point to the a prediction of the things that took place in 70 A.D. But if the book was written 30 or 40 years after 70 A.D., then those prophecies are, or dreams of Paul, of John, can be um, fashioned into a futurism idea of a future world destruction is that exactly kind of the substance of this and so the reason for the question about why the dating is important exactly all all futurists and again this is not a sect or denomination but all christians who believe in a future fulfillment of prophecy they have to go with the late date for revelation and all preterists who are christians who believe in a past fulfillment of prophecy go with the early date because it's so obvious. Right in the introduction, Jesus Christ says, Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things that are written in it, for the time is at hand. Skip down three verses. Behold, he's coming. With, and the King James mistranslated that, saying he will come. No, it says he is about to come with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him and all the tribes of the land, which King James mistranslated earth, all the tribes of the land, talking about Israel, shall mourn over him, even so, amen. So, I mean, this is all about his imminent coming, just like Luke 21:22, we just read, says, these are days of judgment in which all that is written shall be fulfilled. And Revelation is part of all that is written, even though it was written after Christ said that. I mean, all that was written is fulfilled because the the new creation, the new perfect bride, you see, shows up at the end of the book, right after the old harlot bride is utterly destroyed 
you know, we close with the new bride coming down out of heaven. In one vision, she's shown as a perfect temple, the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And then it's described as a bride beautifully adorned and prepared for her husband there in 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. The sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then, you know, Jesus says, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, which is just what Daniel predicted uh, in, in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. All the first things have passed away. And he that sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Here's the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And he said, Right, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, They have come to pass. So, I mean, it's all through the book. The whole theme of the whole rest of the Bible, of in the last days of Israel, God would judge her and recreate her in spiritual form. This is... You know the whole theme of Acts. It's the whole theme of Revelation. Let's uh, let's at least read here the first paragraph in Acts four, verses one through four, please. I'm reading from the New American Standard tonight, chapter four. While Peter and John were still addressing the crowd, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them angry because they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of the dead in the person of Jesus. It was evening by now, so they arrested them and put them in jail for the night. Despite this, many of those who had heard the speech believed. The number of men came to about 5,000. So, yeah, so... um, The authorities are not uh, too happy about all this, this huge crowd that's gathered there in the court of the Gentiles under Solomon's porch. And they had said that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You killed the Messiah, but God has raised him from the dead. We'll hear that over and over through the book of Acts, that the Judeans had had murdered God, the author of life. And uh, anyway, the Sadducees, uh, we're very upset about this. Most of the priests were Sadducees. They didn't believe in any kind of resurrection or any kind of spiritual being at all. The number has gone way up. Now, men would have outnumbered women in these festivals because the men only of of Israel were required to travel up to Jerusalem three times a year. Of course, a lot of the women you know, did go also, just like Mary went when Jesus was younger. But there was probably not 50% or or more, as you would normally find in a religious crowd. But we can think that the total number of believers here is probably on the order now of uh, of eight to 10,000. We started off with 120, then we jumped to 3,000. Now we've jumped up on the order of 10,000 just in a few days. So the Sanhedrin gathered together hear about this. This is what the uh, the next paragraph is going to tell us. Uh, let's read verses 5 through 12, please. When the leaders, the elders, and the scribes assembled the next day in Jerusalem, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly class were there. They brought Peter and John before them, 
and began the interrogation in this fashion. By what power or in whose name have men of your stripe done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke up. Leaders of the people, elders, if we must answer today for a good deed done to a cripple and explain how he was restored to health, then you and all the people of Israel must realize that it was done in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. In the power of that name, this man stands before you perfectly sound. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name in the whole world given to men by which we are to be saved. <laughs> now, pretty good for an illiterate fisherman, right? Hmm. Right. A man of his stripe. What what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, this Papers. this is just rich. I mean, this is so rich here. Peter and John are there along with this guy that 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 they had uh, healed and uh they're standing there in front of the elite of Judea. I mean, the all the wealthiest families, the leading Pharisees, the leading uh Sadducees and priests, they're all there and and uh the educated, yeah. They were obviously, yeah, oh yeah, highly educated. They were, they were obviously concerned for 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 them to be gathered together on such short notice. Um, you know, they were they were quite upset here. And uh, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is, you know, I mean, it's really the Spirit of God. Uh, again, the King James translators, you know, they. They well, they used Holy Ghost, and so we try to think of this as a separate entity or something like that. But um, Christ is working spiritually, you see, through the body. His spirit is in them; they are His body. He's their head, so it's His spirit that is indwelling them, and they're acting with His power and with His spirit. Uh, is is the idea that we should get, you know, when we see this, and you know, he just, I mean, he just <laughs> lets them have it here. And again, he basically accuses them of murder. Can you imagine being surrounded by the wealthiest, most powerful people in America, and you basically call them all murderers? You know, and and they have absolute police authority. They've, they've got soldiers and armed guards right there and everything. So, I mean, this this is just unbelievably bold to call these murders. Now, he, they've, he, they've answered the question, but then he goes to this stone imagery there at the end. This is the stone which was set at naught by you, the builders. And this is uh, quoting from the, uh, I think it's the second psalm. No, it's not. It's way later in the psalms. 100 and... Psalm 118, verse 22. Yeah. And, it's, and again, we most of us have not ever taken the trouble to go back and look at the context of these little quotes but but they're really since the Judeans had these all these scriptures memorized they heard them read you know constantly week after week they would automatically call to mind the rest of the passage 
this is a basically a psalm that's a call to worship, but towards the end it's talking about opening opening the gates of righteousness, uh, which again you can see would fit right into the motif of the new Jerusalem, the way of holiness that only the righteous will walk on, the only the righteous will enter into it. I will give thanks to you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. So Paul, you see, is saying that this is the fulfillment of this psalm right there in the first century. Okay, because the the builders have now become you builders as he quotes it to them. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And so, again, we're seeing here a messianic prophecy being fulfilled with and through the apostles there. Now, Isaiah also has some prophecies that use this stone motif, and I didn't write them down where I could find them. But it's interesting that back in the beginning of the book of Luke, when written by the same guy who wrote Acts, when they take the infant Jesus up to Jerusalem to be dedicated at the temple, which is the whole the whole idea of Jesus going into the temple is so full of imagery that, I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about that. But Simeon was there when Joseph and Mary took Jesus up there. He was a man in Jerusalem who was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And we'll see later in the book of Acts that this is how Paul speaks of the resurrection, the recreation, the rebirth of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus that they might perform after the custom of the law, he held him in his arms and blessed God and said, Let now my servant depart according to your word in peace, Lord, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary, are they're totally freaked out by this. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And this is tied back to that prophecy in Isaiah, which is going back to the, this cornerstone from the 118th Psalm. So he's going to be a stumbling block for many, which will cause them to trip and fall. But for others, he is going to cause them to you know, rise above it all. They'll be pulled out and saved the salvation of Israel, they're going to be saved into the new spiritual Israel. So a lot of rich imagery there, but again, we, we're going to see throughout Acts that that there's, the apostles are just systematically fulfilling every promise that God had made to Israel through through all of the centuries. Now, this next paragraph is pretty long. Let's go ahead and read it, 13 down through 22, please. Observing the self-assurance of Peter and John, and realizing that the speakers were uneducated men of no standing, the questioners were amazed. Then they recognized these men as having been with Jesus. 
When they saw the man who had been cured standing there with them, they could think of nothing to say. So they ordered them out of the court while they held a consultation. What shall we do with these men? Everyone who lives in Jerusalem knows that a remarkable show of power took place through them. We cannot deny it. To stop this from spreading further among the people, we must give them a stern warning never to mention that man's name to anyone again. So they called them back and made it clear that under no circumstances were they to speak the name of Jesus or to teach about him. Peter and John answered, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight for us to obey you rather than God. Surely we cannot help speaking of what we have heard and seen. At that point they were dismissed with further warnings. The court could find no way to punish them because of the people, all of whom were praising God for what had happened. The fact was, the man thus miraculously cured was more than 40 years of age. So the, the top leaders of this council, what had they been doing exact, you know, about two months before this? Oh, no. Do you remember? They've been counseling, they were counseling about what to do with Jesus. Yeah, this is Caiaphas. You know, we got the whole list of them here. Uh, Caiaphas, Annas and his family. Annas and his family served as the high priest for really the whole first century. I mean, Annas had only served a few years early on, uh, like the year 11 or 12, and then it was basically up for bid to the Romans every year, and it was somebody in his family whoever could offer the most money to the Romans. And uh, allegedly, the Romans kept the high priestly garments as hostage, and they only released them once a year right before the day of atonement to their selected candidate to be high priest. So Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law, and he, he served for a long, long time. He had, uh, I don't know, an 18-year run or something. But a lot of these other ones, John Alexander, they, they also probably had a short stint as high priest. They were all you know part of that family. These are the ones who had engineered the false heresy conviction against Jesus and had, you know, and were responsible for his death. So they don't even deny the miracle. They're, you know, they're supposed to be the ones who don't believe in the supernatural. No one can deny the miracle. But, I mean, look how condemning this is, that they just want to cover it up because, you know, and, well, later on we'll see you're trying to bring this man's blood on our heads. This, they're All they're worried about is covering their own backsides. And so they call them in and threaten them. They don't know what to do. There's a Klausner, I think, was a famous Jewish scholar who wrote in the mid 1900s, and uh, he he wrote about this that this was this was the Judean leadership's great mistake. They should have just ignored these guys. They should never have arrested them. Or if they sh- if they did arrest them, they should have just thrown them in a dungeon and thrown away the key. <laughs> well, um, he's got uh, many listeners. That's what they do in Israel today. To dissenters. Yeah, that's true. So these your, didn't. Your uh, friend would have had the right formula for today's state of Israel. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> so these guys hadn't figured it out yet, so they made a major blunder here. <laughs> and again, uh, you know, P- 
Peter and John are absolutely not uh, cowed at all by this. They just boldly tell the most powerful people in the land that, you know, we're going to obey God instead of you. And they couldn't even beat him at this point because all the people had seen, you know, again, all of them knew this guy. He'd been there at that gate for decades begging. And so, I mean, they, there were instantly tens of thousands of witnesses uh, to this amazing miracle of, of healing his, his lameness. So it was, it was an amazing thing. Well, we didn't get as far as I want, but this is probably a, a good place to break here. Uh, we can pick up at verse 23 next time. All right. Well, thanks very much, Mark. That was a fascinating study. We brought some really interesting outside things into this. I think really make it a great study. Thanks yeah. again. And don't talk about Jesus this week either. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, Leslie. All right. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.